So, uh, I wanted to mention again how powerful the effect of the Ram story has been, not only in India, but actually in, that, in Southeast Asia as well. So I'll just read a few things to give you. This is from uh, standard academic history of India. The people of Myanmar, former Burma, and the royal courts and people of Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia recite and enact the stories of Ram. Well, I'm sorry, from the stories from the two epics, the, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, in plays and dance, Indonesia, Indonesia, though predominantly Muslim, boasts of having the best Ramayana ballet in the world. Another fact is that uh, the kings of Thailand, their official title is Rama. Here's another quote. Paraphrase. Thai kings, beginning with Ram, Rama the first in 1782, to the present king Rama the ninth, took the title of Rama, because Rama was known for his valor, moral integrity, and justice. Uh, which promised, in other words, the Thai kings taking the title of Rama was a promise to the people that they would have a fair and just rule from their king. The kings of Thailand are called Ramas, and throughout Southeast Asia, Indonesia. Now, uh, there are innumerable versions of the text. This is from another standard history of Hinduism. There are innumerable versions of the text told and retold in different regions. The three main Ramayans are, of course, the original Valmiki Ramayana in Sanskrit, the Tulsi Das Ramayana in Hindi, and a uh, South Indian, Tamil Narayan. Uh, a Tamil Ramayan, Tamil uh, Ramayan, written in Southeast India. And so, what is going on? Like, why all this buzz about Ram? And so, here, for example, here are quotes from the Tamil Ramayan. Just as Rama, by, written by a gentleman named Kampan, around the 12th century, just as Rama is filled with love of many kinds for all living beings of this world, again, not just humans, Rama is filled with love for all living things, love of many kinds. So, in so many ways, do all living beings love him. Do all living beings love him. And here, again, from the Tamil Ramayana, the one from Southeast India, uh, Sita, Rama's wife, speaking to Lakshman, Rama's brother, those who have known him for even a single day would give their lives for him. And uh, there's another quote here. This is, again, another standard textbook on Hinduism uh, by Professor Kinsley talking about the perception of Ram. Ram always puts the wishes of others before his own. He's loved by all who know him. Uh, Ram is, quote, the ideal son, husband, brother, warrior, and ruler. Rama's reign, his government, Ram Raja, is a prototype of a harmonious and just kingdom. Rama and Sita are the ideal of conjugal love. So the ideal for a wife is to be like Sita. The ideal for a husband is to be like Ram. So, of course, this brings up an interesting question about human psychology. Is it possible for basically hundreds of millions of people over thousands of years to be completely deluded. In other words, 
or perhaps it is. I'm not saying that this, this story is true or not true. I'm simply saying it does bring up an interesting point about human psychology. Because you have people around this part of the world, huge numbers of people for a long time, who not only are inspired by the wrong story, another thing I should mention, so that you can really get into what's happening here, get into the experience. It's not just that it's a story and people thought, this is really a great story. It's much more than that. People who are within the tradition actually believe, in fact, they're convinced, that they are receiving a type of reciprocation from Sita and Ram. In other words, in their prayers, in their, and there are temples. There are temples. I mean, I've, I've seen many such temples in India. There are many temples to Sita Ram, or, you know, as a couple, and usually, I mean, often in, in sacred art in India and in temple sculptures, you'll find the four, Sita Ram and Lakshman, who's Ram's brother, who accompanied him to the forest, and Hanuman, the Varana, uh, I'm sorry, Vanara, Varana is something, another kind of animal, after the Vanara, or often depicted as a monkey, sort of a highly evolved monkey, and uh, who helped Ram. So these four are often pictured together, and Sita is often uh, depicted holding her hand, the sign of blessing, the sign of blessing. And, and people are deeply convinced that they actually have a relationship with Sita Ram, that they're being blessed by Sita Ram, that they're receiving some type of very powerful internal spiritual reciprocation. And I think it's... Is there a chair there for you? Is there a seat back there for you? In other words, I don't, I don't think that people, that it's possible historically for people to remain this attached and be so deeply involved with the story just because it's a really good story. Like, like I mentioned before, Lord of the Rings was basically a billion dollar movie, the trilogy. It made a billion dollars at the box office, and then of course, DVD sales and rentals and secondary products, which often make more money than the movie and so on and so forth. You know, you've got to get your Lord of the Rings keychain and so on. But apart from all that, it's, uh, people don't really pray to the residents of Middle Earth. In other words, if, if you look at, if you take the, the most powerful fictional narrations, the ones that do the biggest at the box office, that have the biggest buzz, the, the people are more, it just doesn't have exactly this kind of effect. There's something more going on here. Again, which doesn't prove, in the scientific sense, that the story actually happened. Ram and Sita actually came to Earth. But it does show that there's something very powerful going on in human psychology. So that for thousands of years, people keep praying and worshipping and building temples to this day in India. Probably even as we speak, there are many very beautiful, very expensive temples of Ram under construction somewhere in India right now. Ram Leela, uh, theater involving Ram, is going on. Yes? I'm kind of backtracking here and wanted to ask you a question about the Ram Raj issue. Oh, that's it. Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. For tracking there. Well, I guess I guess uh, my question was, we hear about Ram's character so much in the Ramayana, but what about a code of ruling? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. So, um, again, putting aside the whole issue of like, is there really a ROM, is there not a ROM, just putting aside that issue, what we can say objectively and scientifically is that there is some very deep aspect of human psychology which responds to this. And again, whether or not ROM actually exists and came to Earth, what we know for a scientific fact is that uh, people 
large numbers of people over, in fact, I think you could say most human beings that ever lived on the earth at most times. Just most human beings that ever lived felt in whatever religious tradition they were in, whatever they worshipped, whatever they believed in, felt that they had some kind of connection to a divine realm. They had some kind of connection to something beyond the physical, beyond the human. That they were connected to it, that somehow that divine realm is uh, responsible for the way the world is at the present time, and that uh, somehow their people, human beings, their ultimate self-interest depended on establishing an appropriate relationship with that divine power. Again, just as a psychological issue, most human beings that ever lived believe that. And so, of course, the alternatives are simply that there is some kind of divine realm, or that this is by far the biggest, most powerful mass hallucination or mass illusion in human history. And, I, and I'm not going to say, I can't say which one it is, obviously, uh, but, but it is an interesting psychological issue. And I don't think, how should I put it, as I said before, I don't think this fact about human psychology is a trivial fact, and I don't think it can be very easily and obviously dismissed as an illusion. Whether it's true or not, whether people are, are right or not, it is a very significant, very complex fact of human psychology. So, uh, now Rama. Here's another quote. Any questions on that? In fact, I think it would be extraordinarily arrogant to simply dismiss it as trivial. Because another problem is that these kinds of beliefs, whatever religion, whatever part of the world, whatever period of history, these kinds of beliefs have tended to produce uh, some of the most impressive human culture. For example, if you look at Europe, if you look at India, if you look at China, if you go all around the world, if you look at Central America, I mean, a lot of the most impressive, and to some extent the most impressive, architecture has somehow come from some kind of belief in a divine realm. Literature, music, dance, moral systems. You could argue, in fact, it has been argued that from a historical perspective, moral systems, the idea that you can't just go out and grab whatever you want, whether it's someone else's money or a woman or land, you can't just go out and grab what you want. We are actually required to follow moral rules, not merely because of a humanistic sense of social contract theory that, well, if you do that, everyone else will do it, because there are plenty of gamblers out there. There are plenty of gamblers out there, and there, there, there are lots of people that will say, I'll take my chances. Like, maybe if I cheat on my taxes, everyone will cheat on their taxes, and uh, then the government won't receive any money, and then there won't be any public services. But I'll, t I, I'll take my chances that everybody won't cheat on their taxes. Or if I usurp your rights, if I somehow interfere with your rights, if I become a tyrant, I'll take my chances. Sure, if I act beyond the law and I seize power, sure, maybe someone else will try to do that to me, but I'll take my chances. I think I'm strong enough to defend myself. And there's lots of gamblers out there. And if you look at history, if you look at history, uh, moral systems did not arise from sophisticated notions of social contract theory. They actually arose from some kind of belief in a divine power beyond the human realm. And so you can just give one very simple example, equality, the sense of equality. Uh, if you look at Greco-Roman civilization, 
Uh, despite all their extremely sophisticated cultural achievements, one of them was not a strong sense of equality. That was not one of their achievements. In fact, the reason that Athens had such great town hall democracy, where all the Athenian citizens actually went up on the Acropolis and really, you know, governed their city, the reason they did that, or could do that, is because they all had so many slaves at home. And if you've got a lot of slaves at home to farm your land and wash the dishes and stuff like that, then you've got plenty of time for committee meetings. So the Greeks, I mean, scholars feel that maybe even most of the people in Athens were slaves. So, and the Romans certainly couldn't really get their head around the idea, head around the idea of, you know, total egalitarianism. So, interestingly, I mean, Jesus taught that. The, the idea that, you know, whatever you do to the least of my people, you've done to me, and so on. So we, we can see in many different ways, in fact, the Declaration of Independence, I might have mentioned before, we have divine right democracies. Divine right democracy. Rights given by a creator. So, again, moral systems, architecture, music, uh, all kinds of extremely impressive cultural things that come out of some kind of belief in a divine realm beyond the human. And this is not a trivial fact. A lot of the greatest achievements in human history, moral and otherwise, are not a trivial fact. They're actually a very significant fact. And so it's a very significant fact about human psychology. It doesn't prove anything except that it's a very significant fact about human psychology. It needs to be taken seriously and cannot be trivially dismissed or reduced to some type of uh, illusion in, in a very simple, condescending way. So, Ron, anything about that? If not, we'll jump into the Ramayan story. Um, okay, here's a quote for you. Try this one out. Uh, triumph. Well, what is that quote I promised you? Uh, now I've got it here somewhere. Anyway, the quote I thought I had. Oh, yeah. Above all, as with the Mahabharata, above all, the Ramayana is a tale about Dharma. So as I said before, the Ram story, which is so important to, to Hindu culture, really starts to, what's the word? It, it starts to really make tangible all kinds of things we're talking about. We talked about Dharma, and Ram is the emblem of Dharma. So, so, so what is the story? I mean, you've read the story, right? Basically, there's a kingdom called Ayodhya in northeast India. And uh, Dasharath, King Dasharath, has three wives. From these three wives, he has four sons. And the eldest son is Ram, primogenitor. And Ram is supposed to be king. And at a certain point, uh, Dasharath wants to make him king. Before this, of course, Ram is sort of sent away in a rite of passage. Vishra, Vishamrita comes, a Brahmin, a king, someone who used to be a king, became a Brahmin, and tells him that in the forest, remember the Shramana movement, in the forest there are sages performing sacrifices and some very bad people are harassing them, threatening them uh, and just polluting their sacrifices and just sort of terrorizing them. So Ram goes out and, and he kills these demons and in a sense he shows he's worthy to be king, he comes back, Dasharath wants to give him the kingdom. Dasharath is getting older. It's time to retire. And uh, then Kaikeyi, the second wife, Kaikeyi, and her name means she's from Kekaya, an ancient Vedic kingdom in northwest India, decides to cash in two boons. Once Dasharath was in a battle 
and he was, uh, I think he was wounded, and Kaikei bravely drove a chariot onto the battlefield and saved him, saved his life, and he promised her two boons, like, I'll give you two wishes. So she now, there's a hunchback woman, what's her name again? Mantara. Huh? Mantara. Mantara, yeah, Mantara. And, uh, she is sort of a personal servant to Kaikei and starts filling her ear with poison that actually uh, you shouldn't let Ram become king. If Ram becomes king, your son will be marginalized and even maybe in danger because once Ram has power, you know how rivalry is in, in royal families. I mean, the history of the world is filled by the cases of like kings killing their brothers and even their sisters, even their mothers and their fathers. If you study, like say, the history of European royalty, or many other parts of the world, it's extremely violent. There was a period in India, for example, under the uh, Mughals, where they actually went a few centuries without one king dying in his sleep, or even dying of a disease. I mean, every king among the Mughals, every, every ruler was, was killed in some way, and this went on for centuries before they had one that died in his sleep. So, Mantra is giving this argument that you really need to uh, get rid of Ram and make your son the king. Her, uh, Kaikei's son, of course, is, is Bharata. Anyway, uh, Kaikei, who before then was like, you know, a nice lady, and it was all one happy family, she actually becomes poisoned by this, by, which is all false, of course. It's all false. And she decides to cash in her boons, and she tells Dasharatha, her husband, that my first, for my first boon, uh, I, I believe she wants Bharata to be king, and then she wants Ram banished to the forest to make sure he doesn't interfere with her son. And Dasharatha struggles with this. He, uh, he's basically devastated. I mean, he's actually going to die from it. He's so heartbroken. Because after all, I mean, he thinks that, you know, this is my loving wife, and we've been together all our lives. She saved my life, and, and now suddenly she's doing this. So he's so heartbroken, he'll eventually die from it. But he has to, he has to keep his word. I mean, this is a very interesting thing about this culture, about this, their sense of dharma that even though, in a sense, it's the wrong thing to do. And the story's set up like that. Ram is actually the eldest son. He's totally overqualified for the position. And the people love him. Everyone in the kingdom wants Ram. And, uh, and yet the king feels he has to keep his word. He has to keep his word. And that's dharma, that you must keep your word. And that somehow if you don't keep your word, even though it's an evil, let's say, vanishing wrong, but if you don't keep your word, somehow a greater evil will be done. Because Dharma will be injured. And at the king, there's a verse in the Gita, Jajaracharati Whatever the best person does, common people follow, whatever the leader does. And that's why they get celebrities and movie stars to, you know, to endorse different kinds of toothpaste and everything. So, so he feels he has to do it. And then Ram feels he has to obey his father, even though he has the people's support, he has the power. So I, I wrote one verse on the, on the board, and then I'll get back to this other one here. This is a verse from the, uh, I think it's the Bhagavad Purana, an important Sanskrit text. So I, I thought just, just to show you how Ram is glorified in all kinds of other Sanskrit literature. It said about him, Dharmishta, Dharma you know. And so Dharmi, like yogi, Dharmi means one who practices Dharma. Dharmiya means one who's really practices Dharma. It's like a comparative degree. And Dharmista, by the way, the ST here in Sanskrit, the same ST we have. In English superlative, like best, finest, it's the same ST. So, Dharmista means like the greatest 
practicer of dharma. And so it's said about Ram that he is dharmishta, the most dharmic, because Arya Vachasan, these are all words you've had. Remember the word Arya, the Aryans and all that? So Arya means a noble person. And in this case, it's his father. That for a son, the father is Arya, a venerable, noble person. And so, and Vachasa, this is like voice, like our English word vocal or voice, Vachasa, Indo-European root. So literally sort of by the statement of his father, by the command of his father, by the speech, by the voice of his father, uh, Ram, being Dharmishta, being the most Dharmic, yeah, uh, therefore, a god, he went. Like, god, here is go, English go, in the European word. Aranya, to the forest, remember? Aranyakas, that class of literature, the forest books. So Ram, being Dharmishta, therefore, uh, by the voice or by the order of, his, of the Arya, his noble father, he went to the forest. He went into exile. So that's an example of, of, of how this is seen by the tradition. This is a statement from another scripture talking about Ram. And it's just one song, maybe I'll, before we get off the story. Everyone in India knows this song, isn't it? I mean, those of you who are from India, I mean, this is like the national anthem of Hinduism. It's a Raghupati. Ram appeared in a dynasty called the Raghu. The, a dynasty named after the great king Raghu. Therefore, he's on. So, he's Pati, the lord of the Raghu dynasty, because he was the king of the Raghu dynasty. And Raghava, he's also called Raghava because from the word Raghu, a member of this dynasty is called Raghava. He's from the Raghu dynasty. And Raja Ram, King Ram. King Ram, the Raghava, is actually the lord of the Raghu dynasty. And then uh, Patita Pavana. Pavana literally means a purifier. Uh, by the way, from the Sanskrit root, P-U, uh, which is obviously cognate with the English word pure. So, uh, Pavana, the purifier in the sense of the savior, Petita of the fallen, savior of the fallen, uh, Sita Ram. And Ram is called Sita Ram because grammatically, this being a Tatrusha compound, uh, it means that Ram who belongs to Sita, Ram of Sita. Again, this ideal couple. So this, I wrote this on the board because it's like, I mean, I don't think there's anything in Hinduism more famous than this little song. It's sung all the time. I mean, I've attended Ram Leelas in India, where they're celebrating Ram, uh, Ram's activities. And as soon as the, the professional musicians, as soon as they start to sing this, everyone joins in. It's one of those songs where you have thousands and thousands of people, and everyone will immediately join in to sing this. Is that all the lyrics? What's that? Is that all the lyrics? Oh, yeah, they, they can do other lyrics, too, but this is like the main thing. It's, it's like a mantra for them, and they'll just chant this, isn't it? Just chant this for a long time, many different beautiful melodies and so on. Raghupati Raghava Raja Ram, Patita Pavana Sita Ram. There you go. So, um, so then Ram went to the forest, and uh, actually there's an interesting verse where he actually likes it. There's always somewhat hyperbolic verses where everyone's weeping and wailing, like, how can Ram go to the forest? His tender feet will be, you know, bruised by the twigs and pebbles and the forest path and everything. So it, it gets a little sentimental. But then Ram says, actually, I like it out here in the country. It's like, a, I like it out here. It's better than city life. And there's a common theme you find in these literatures. Kings going out to the forest and actually enjoying camping out, going out to the wilderness, getting away from all the opulence and all the, you know, the formalities of palace life, and really just enjoying being out in the country. 
So then uh, all these other adventures take place. And uh, then Sita is stolen. You know that story. I'm sure you've read the story. Sita is then stolen by this demon Robin who's like... I mean, in, in Ron Wheelers, I've even seen this. That they'll build an effigy of Robin of this demon and then they'll shoot it. Just a, a Ram shot Ravana with, um, with an arrow. So people, what they'll do is they'll have these festivals where they'll, sh- they'll shoot a flaming arrow, set an arrow on fire, and shoot it into an effigy of Ravana and just, you know, put his lights out. They'll just, you know, then the effigy burns up and everything. I've seen this many times. So Ravana is like the arch demon and Ram is the arch hero. Yes? It's very odd that she asks for the skin of the deer, which is like... Yeah, I was wondering about that. I think she might have just asked for the deer as a pet, mm. as opposed to the skin of the deer. Because why would he then kill it? He should have just brought it home. Yeah. yeah, I think she wanted a pet deer as opposed to, you know, like, putting a, a trophy skin up on, on her wall. <laughs> Did they do that? Trophy skins? They what? Did they ever do that? Put, no. No. They were, um... Of course, animals that died naturally, they would use the skin. Like, for example, you hear about forest sages. In fact, in our advanced Sanskrit class later today, the first word of the chapter is ajinani, which are kind of like those skins they would wear. Because if you live in the forest, you, know, you come across all kinds of animals that have died of natural causes or for various reasons. There's also hunters in the forest, of course, who are not the sages, but they would wear deer skin, which was considered to be somehow, uh, well, it kept you warm. It gets cold out in the forest, and they didn't, there were no malls. <laughs> so, um, so then, the, the trick basically was that um, Marici, or is it Maricha? Actually, Maricha. Maricha was a friend of Ravana, fellow demon, and uh, he didn't want to do it. Ravana came to him and said that, I want you to help me, because Maricha had a power, which is, uh, I think one of the books, they translated shape-shifting. <laughs> Amazing translation. It's, um, there's a Sanskrit term, which is used a lot in this literature. It's used in uh, the Mahabharata also, Kama Rupa. Rupa means a form, like a body, and Kama means wish or desire. So there's this yoga power, which is often talked about in the text, that at your wish, by your desire, you can change your shape, you can change it in any form. You see this in Krishna Leela and the activities of Krishna. You see it in the Ram story. You see it in the Mahabharata. It's, it's a sort of a standard thing. So, uh, so Maricha had this power of Kama Rupa. He could change his Rupa, change his form, Kama, at his wish. And so Ravana said, basically, I want you to take the shape of this beautiful deer and, you know, and then tempt Ram away, because, you know, Sita will want it and so on and so forth. And Maricha said, no way. Because he knew the power of Ram. He knew that this was going to be his death. So basically, Ravana made him an offer he couldn't refuse you know, in the best godfather tradition. He said, he said that, if you don't do it, I'll kill you now. If you do it, Ram may kill you. So, you know, make your choice. So Maricha thought he'd take his chances. And he, and he took the form of this deer. And, uh, and then Sita did want this. Say as a pet deer, this would be the more uh, sort of nicer version of it. 
and Ram went out to get it, but Ram left Lakshman behind to protect Sita, because they're, they're out in the middle of the wilderness, a wilderness filled with ogres and filled with you know, all kinds of weird creatures. So Rama leaves uh, Lakshman behind, and uh, then what happens is Ram eventually realizes the deer is a demon. He realizes that actually this is not really a deer, it's actually a Rakshasa. And so he shoots the deer, at that point, the Maricha, before he, as he's dying, because he has this Kamarupa thing, he perfectly imitates Ram's voice and cries out, Sita, Sita, or, or not Sita, he just cries out for help to Lakshman, actually. Cries out for help to Lakshman. And so Lakshman and Sita, they're back in their little hermitage, and they hear Ram, perfect, perfect Ram voice. They hear Ram crying out for help. And Sita, for whom Ram is everything, you okay? And so Sita is absolutely in a panic. Sita's in a panic because uh, she thinks Ram's really in danger. And so she insists that Lakshman go and, and help Ram. And uh, Lakshman says that, look, you know, Ram is all powerful. It's not possible that Ram's really in danger, and it's probably a trick. He basically tells her the truth. But Sita is just completely, you know, almost hysterical because she thinks Ram is really in danger and she insists that he go. And so he does go. There's actually a very popular Hindu story, which is not perhaps in the Valmiki Ramayana, but it's an extremely popular story. And that is that Lakshman draws a circle around Sita. And, and he sort of empowers this and says that within this circle, you'll be safe. Don't go outside this circle. You okay? Yeah. So, um, then, wait, anyway, once Lakshman's gone, so Ram's gone now, Lakshman's gone, and at that point, Ravana comes, and he's also got this Kamarupa, or, no, not Kamarupa, I think he just disguised himself. He's got ten heads, he must have done something. <laughs> I mean, imagine when Ravana has a bad hair day. So, anyway... So Ravana, dis- Ravana disguised himself as a, as a sage, a Brahmin sage. Why? Because Ram and Sita, they're all royal, Lakshman, they're from the Kshatriya class, and their whole culture is to honor sages and to serve them. You know, when Ram went away to kill those demons before he was king, it was because a Brahmin asked him. You couldn't turn down the request of a Brahmin. We'll see in the Mahabharata story, one of the great personalities, Karna, had a famous vow, Data Karna, you know, Karna the giver, that he would never refuse the request of a Brahmin. So for kings to give to Brahmins, to protect Brahmins, to take care of them, was practically their first religious duty. It was their first dharma. And they were raised from childhood. If you were a prince or a princess, from your earliest childhood, you would be trained to, you know, when Brahmins would come, sages, to serve them, you know, to bring them food or drink, to honor them. So this was really just the, I mean, it, it, was, it was their first dharma. Life was about dharma, and this was the first dharma. So Sita's there, and this Brahmin comes, this elderly Brahmin saying, you know, please help me or give me something to eat or drink. So Sita, of course, responds. She's a little suspicious, but then it's actually Ravana, of course. Now, in, in there, there's a very popular Hindu story where Ravana lures Sita out of the circle 
and, and then she leaves the circle. But in any case, the Valmiki Ramayan, Sita goes to help him, serve him, and then of course he immediately captures her. And uh, he, has a, he has this aerial car. It's another thing, they talk a lot about airplanes in this ancient literature, which is interesting. And uh, there is a whole theory, by the way, again, you know, whatever really happened, that's another thing. But you find uh, that there is a whole theory that actually previous civilizations did have a different kind of technology. You get things like the pyramids. I mean, I mean, things built different parts of the world. And, and there are theories that actually the ancient world was not completely primitive. They simply had a different type of technology. In any case, uh, there are air, lots of air vehicles, flying vehicles in this ancient literature. And Ravana has one. And so he takes Sita into this pushpaka, this flying vehicle, and just flies away with her. And at that time, Jatayu, who's a highly evolved vulture, smarter than your average vulture, Jatayu comes, and he's a friend of Ram, and immediately attacks Ravana, and fights with him, and loses his life. Loses his life. Rama, I, mean, I think Ravana cuts his wings off and just mutilates him, and, and Jatayu lies dying on the ground, and... Ram flies away with, I'm sorry, Ravana flies away with Sita. So when Ram and Lakshman come back, and they find Sita's gone, and now they're like panicking. And uh, so then they find Jatayu, and Jatayu with his last breath, in his dying moments, reveals to Ram what has happened. So there's this very powerful scene, actually, where, uh, because Ram, of course, although he's considered to be an inc- uh, descent of Vishnu, of God in the world, so there's this very powerful scene where Ram cries out, and the whole universe hears it, that, that if he doesn't find Sita, he'll, you know, he'll destroy the world. It, it's very, like, completely distraught, completely overcome, that he has to find. So anyway, he has to find, he doesn't know where Sita's gone, he doesn't know where Ravana's kingdom is. Again, he's playing the part of a human being. He's playing the part of a human being. So, uh, they start heading south, and eventually they, they, they run into this, this you know, if you saw the last episode of uh, Star Wars, you know that you know monkeys or monkey-like creatures can be very intelligent and help you in battles. In fact, that's where, I think that's where George Lucas got the idea from the Ramayana. George Lucas actually uh, made a serious study of world mythology uh, before he um, did Star Wars. Even uh, actually took on. You probably know uh, that uh, what's his name, Campbell. You know, the guy that writes about the, about the mythology. Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, yeah. He actually sort of took on Joseph Campbell as a mythology guru. I mean, a serious study and tried to sort of find the universal themes. One more thing I, I should mention, that if you study world mythology, one thing you'll find is it's, it's sort of remarkably similar. So you can go all around the world and find very similar stories. It's interesting. So... Anyway, I think that's where George Lucas got that thing for the last episode of Star Wars. So they find these monkeys, and uh, they join Ram. They go to the very southern tip of India, which is Setu Banda. There Ram builds a bridge. In fact, it said that Ram threw these huge boulders into the water and made them float. Sort of, they made the boulders float. And these weren't just, you know, like Hollywood props. They were the real boulders. And he made them float on the water and actually created a bridge over to Sri Lanka, and then, uh, now before that, of course, Hanuman had leaped across the water and found Sita. He actually found Sita. 
and uh, I, I suppose I meant that because Hanuman, I say a word about Hanuman. Hanuman, the word Hanu, by the way, means jaw in Sanskrit. So Hanuman means he had like this real pronounced jaw. And uh, Hanuman is an extremely important figure in, in Hinduism. He's an extremely important figure. Hanuman is really the emblem of the devoted servant of the Lord. And there are many Hanuman temples. Even in, I've seen in Vrindavan, which is the land of Krishna, we'll talk about that later, there's a Hanuman temple. So there are, all around India, there are temples to Hanuman. And uh, there's a famous story, which you often see depicted in Hindu art, where someone challenged uh, Hanuman in terms of his devotion to Ram. He actually tore his chest open, and there in, in his heart were Sita and Ram. <laughs> and so... Hanuman really is one of the, the uh, like the, the, the symbol or the uh, the guy in Hinduism who really personifies complete, like this fierce, uncompromising devotion to God and, and devotion to the service of God. That's Hanuman. Anyway, so Hanuman, yes? There's a pejorative statement in there. It says, uh, in Dr. Rodriguez, it says, um, the Hanuman worshipers are usually the local as, uh, you know, and that's not true at all. Well, everyone worships Sita Ram Lakshman Hanuman. Right. So I, I don't know if there's some particular group that only worship Hanuman and not Sita Ram, but... Right, I mean, it's like... No, no, as you know, in Hinduism, everyone honors Hanuman. I mean, you can... I know, because hundreds of times I've spoken to Hindu audiences, you just refer to Hanuman as one of the main reference points in Hindu thinking in terms of being a absolutely devoted servant of God, Hanuman is one of the main reference points and a model. As so all these main figures in the, in the Ramayana story are sort of like uh, models. Like, like Hanuman is the model of, of the devoted servant of God who will do anything for his master. And the Sita as the perfect wife, Ram as the perfect husband, Lakshman as the perfect brother, and even Bharat and so on. So all the main figures, and Robin is sort of the perfect demon, you know, the perfect storm. So all these main figures in the Ramayana are very much models within Hinduism. And outside of India also, like I said, in Thailand the kings are called Ramas. So... Um, any questions about, about these points so far? Hanuman, there's one story which is really great that we showed in the Hindu movies, the Ramayana. There's innumerable Hindu movies about the Ramayana. Where Hanuman jumps over, he wants to do reconnaissance, check out the situation, make sure Sita's there, you know, evaluate the enemy defenses and so on. So he jumps over, he finds Sita in this grove. Now one thing was not mentioned in the book, and that is uh, apparently Ravana had been cursed Ravana had been cursed that if he ever raped a woman, he would die. And so therefore, Ravana could not enjoy Sita by force. And therefore, he tried everything. He tried, you know, psychological harassment. Like, he put her in this grove with all, with all these other women who were constantly preaching to her about, come on, you know, Ravana's the guy. <laughs> you know, he may have a big harem, but you'll be number one. You go right up to the top slot. And, you know, he'll give, give you power, he'll give you riches, this, that. He's really, he's really a nice guy once you get to know him. And, and uh, also there were threats, like you don't, if you don't accept Ravana, you know, you'll be killed, you'll be, you know, fed to the, you know, 
some kind of weird creatures or something. And yet, of course, Sita is absolutely unbreakable in her devotion. I mean, it's romantic. She was absolutely, un, you know, her love for Ram was absolutely unshakable. There's no, no, there's no threat and no offer that can even slightly change her love for Ram. There's songs about that. I remember when I was a kid, there all kinds of pop songs about that. Anyway, I won't sing them now for you, but you can go to YouTube on your own time. So, so then uh, Hanuman offers to take Sita back to Ram, but she won't go because she just, again, she just thinks, I don't really think it's appropriate for you to pick me up right now and take me in your arms, so I think I'll just stay here for now. And if Ram wants me, Ram can come and get me. That's basically Sita's attitude. And then uh, Hanuman decides to meet Ravana face to face and sort of give him a taste of the medicine that's coming. So he allows himself to be arrested. He's obviously in Sri Lanka without a passport, without a visa. So he allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be arrested and he's brought before Ravana. And, and Ravana thinks Hanuman's like a big joke, like, yeah, like I'm really afraid of this monkey. So, because Ravana has all these supernatural powers. So just like, like just to have some fun, he says, just light his tail on fire. So they light Hanuman's, they, they tie him up and light his tail on fire, and then Hanuman, of course, immediately breaks the bonds and flies around long, uh, Sri Lanka just setting fire to everything. <laughs> and then people realize, well, I guess he's not just a monkey. So <laughs> then Hanuman jumps, you know, he goes back, he tells Ram, Ram assembles his army, builds the bridge, and they attack Sri Lanka. And then there's all these battle scenes. There's all these battle scenes, and uh, of course, finally, there's one very dramatic moment. At one point, uh, Ram and Lakshman are, are, are injured. And, and, and this is really the Leela aspect of that word Leela. In the sense, it's almost like, imagine a father or mother playing with their kids. And so sometimes, let's say they'll play a game with a little child, sometimes, oh, you know, like, like a little mock fight. And, and, and so the little child will pretend like they're striking the parent, and the parent will, you know, fall down as if, I mean, it's a typical thing that, that parents and, you know, and children, little children, they always play like this in different ways. And so, in a sense, the understanding from a religious perspective is that the Lord is acting like, oh, I'm injured now, so now my devotee has to help me. It's, it's, it's Leela, it's a game, they're playing. And so, uh, so Ram's, so Hanuman has to go and bring back some medicinal herbs, medicinal herbs. Uh, in order to help Raman Lakshman, he goes there and he can't figure out which is the right herbs, he just brings the whole mountain back. And this is another very, very famous scene, always depicted in Hindu paintings, of Hanuman flying with the mountain, this, you know, which is like a sort of one-stop, you know, natural path shopping. So he, Hanuman flying with this mountain of herbs. And then there's this very dramatic scene where finally Ravana comes out after his brother Kumbhakarna, who's this huge giant that sleeps most of the time and they have to like, it takes a whole army to wake him up. He's defeated. Ravana's son, his own son, is killed. And finally, there's uh, Ravana personally comes out to confront Ram and Ram kills him. And then takes Sita and then they go back to Ayodhya. And then, and then it's a very controversial thing where Sita's eventually sent away. This is something which I think doesn't really make anyone terribly happy. It's, it's always kind of a... Uh, it's, it's, not, it's something which I think even in, if you look at Indian history, it's always something which people aren't completely ecstatic about. And yet it's considered to be dharma, but not a very happy dharma. And so the point is, I mean, think of it, to try to explain this from 
the Indian point of view. Well, I have one quote here. This is from Kinsley's book on Hinduism. Although this act may seem cruel and unfair, it may suggest to modern Western readers a flaw in Rama's character. In the Hindu tradition, it is seen as noble and self-effacing and marks Rama as a king of exceptional character. Think of nepotism, where you just favor your brother or, or, or your relatives. In other words, you steal from the people and give to your family. The idea here is that a king is a servant of the people. It's the upside-down pyramid, you know, in modern, like, uh, management, enlightened management strategies and a corporation. The person on the top is actually a servant of everyone and all that stuff. The upside-down pyramid. So the idea is the king was actually a servant of everyone, and therefore the king had to put the people ahead of his, himself and his own family. And uh, the king had to be a perfect example of following the moral law. So, again, it's not something which, uh, somehow or other, the idea is that Ram was... Another, another important thing to mention here is that this is considered to be Nitya Leela. This is also a very important point that you brought up. Nitya means eternal. So the idea of Nitya Leela is that Ram is actually eternal and Sita is eternal. And they're performing these pastimes, they're performing this story on the earth in order to teach human beings. And so that human beings can become enlightened just by telling these stories, singing them, watching plays, and so on. But that actually Sita and Rama are an eternal couple. They're an eternal couple who exist beyond the earth in a spiritual realm. And therefore, their so-called separation is just a temporary thing, like something done on, done on a theatrical stage. And then, in fact, Sita and Rama are really eternally together. And they're simply performing this act to teach that rulers must always put the people before themselves. But actually it's not really a separation at all. So, uh, any questions on these points? If not, you are very close to freedom. No more questions? Okay, so uh, see you all Wednesday.